Good morning, church. We are in Luke chapter 16 this morning. Luke chapter 16. And uh, we'll be tackling another uh, question in this series we've been going through called God, I Have a Question. I'll remind you again, if you do have uh, any questions to share, you can see me uh, after the service. You can send me a message. Uh, and we could, we could make this sermon series go a little bit longer if you'd like to. Uh, but this morning, we're tackling a very difficult question. How can a loving God send people to hell? I often joke about my children in this way. When they turn 18, I'm changing the locks. Amen? They could get a job. They could go to school. But they're not living in my house for free. Now, I'm joking, obviously. Famous last years, yeah. It's easier to say now that, you know, my own, oldest is only 12, but I won't be so callous with my children when they become adults. And even if they do choose to move out, they won't be out of my life forever. My children will always find love and acceptance in my home as long as they live. You see, many of us have these parental instincts, at least the idea that stirs up these kind of emotions. And the emotions really get stirred up as skeptics paint this picture of hell. Suppose one of your children come home after uh, a late curfew. They come home late after curfew. Now, a decent and responsible adult, a decent and responsible parent, punishes that child based on the crime, of course. And the Bible, though, calls all sins equal. And therefore, every crime deserves, according to skeptics, for the child to be locked up in the basement and tortured for eternity. Now, that's pretty crazy, right? But skeptics teach that that's a show or try to try to teach that that's what the Bible is saying. The God is portrayed as a callous, a cranky explosion of wrath at the sight of any sin, no matter how great or how small. Where is there room for love in the scenario of eternity in hell? And that brings us to our passage today as I tackle this question. How can a loving God send people to hell? Jesus tells this parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in, in purple and fine linen. And, and he lived in luxury every day. Now at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, was buried, and in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in all this fire. 
But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received all kinds of good things, while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us is a great chasm that's been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will also will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Jesus said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this parable teaches us so much about your nature, so much about eternity, and we ask that you will just guide and lead us this morning to seek uh, your truth and your word. And I pray, Lord, that you will continue to grant us the faith that we so desperately need uh, to live in this world. Father, we're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to dive right in and give you three reasons, three ways that we can reconcile the love of God and this divine justice. The first uh, way that we can reconcile the love of God and divine justice, and if you want to write this down, please do. God will not, God will not be indifferent to sin. A lady by the name of Becky Pippert uh, wrote a wonderful book, Hope Has Its Reasons. And she writes this quote that I have to share with you. Think how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. When someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships, do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race whom he loves with all of his heart. Take a moment with me to look at Lazarus. Lazarus was poor, right? We're told that he was begging by this rich man's gate. He was hungry. We're told that he he longed for the crumbs that fell from the table. We're told that he was sick. He was covered in sores. And And Lazarus was also humiliated. How humiliating to have these these wild dogs come and lick his wounds. And you know, this, this uh, parable has Lazarus pitted against this rich man. There's a comparison. This unnamed rich man was well-dressed. He lived in a comfortable 
and, and he, life, and he lived a healthy life, and he ignored the plight of the beggar. The rich man was so consumed with his wealth that he became callous to the injustice happening right before his very eyes. And listen to this. He knew that beggar's name. He knew his name. And even asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his father. Is this beggar so well known that his family even chose to ignore his plight? Listen to me again. The rich man knew Lazarus' name. And he still ignored his plight. The richest man alive to ever walk the face of the earth was recorded as saying these words in Proverbs 21, 13. If a man shuts his eyes to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. You see, God saw the cancer of greed. He saw the cancer of pride and idolatry that gripped the heart of the rich man and consumed his life. He had right before his very fingers the words of Solomon, the words of the prophets, the words of the law that encouraged him to open his eyes to the poor. God cannot and will not stand idly by and be indifferent to sin. God's indifference would show hate towards Lazarus. His indifference would show hate towards the rich man. And therefore, God won't be indifferent to sin. The second reason this morning, a way that we can reconcile these two, is that hell begins before physical death. Hell begins before physical death. Now, I've got a lot of quotes to share this morning, so, so bear with me. Uh, many of these are from C.S. Lewis, who creates this uh, concept that, that we come to. Uh, in his book, The Great uh, Divorce, he writes about a busload of people from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. Of course, this is a, a fictional story. They're urged to leave behind the sins that trap them in hell, but they refuse. They refuse. And then C.S. Lewis writes these words. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining and always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. Uh, you may even criticize yourself and wish you would stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is gr something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud was the words of C.S. Lewis. There's not a question of God sending us a hell, but something within us that grows and grows, that becomes hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. Timothy Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, suggests that people are in hell 
uh, people in hell are miserable because they are locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness. Their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud, and they continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. Now let's go back to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We never actually see the rich man cry out for freedom, do we? He doesn't seem to want to be freed. He just wants relief so he can stay there. He's also still so full of pride and self-centeredness that his first request to Father Abraham, and he calls him Father Abraham, his first request to Abraham, hey, get that beggar Lazarus, that servant Lazarus, tell him to go fetch me some water. Then he says, well, okay, if he can't fetch me some water, will you send him to, will you send him to my family? Will you as a servant, as a messenger, as beneath me, send him to my family? C.S. Lewis goes on to say that there are two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God in the end says, Thy will be done. And all in hell are those who choose my will be done. Without that self-choice, C.S. Lewis writes, there wouldn't be a hell. I believe that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, he says that God gave them. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies for one another, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And he gave them over to this. They served and worshipped created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. God gave them over to a sin that became hell for them here on earth. He allows us to choose. And hell, it really begins long before we die. Carl told me on Wednesday that Dr. Black used to teach that heaven begins at baptism. We all choose if we are going to live a life that brings heaven to earth or if we're going to live a life that brings and becomes hell on earth. Now the final way that I want to reconcile this thought is that God is, in fact, love, but he, he's so much more. God is love, but so much more. Now in his book, Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis points out that our definition of God, that God is love, that definition of love, God, that it, it may in fact be true, but the problem is not the statement God is love. The problem is the understanding of what love means. He suggests that when many of us say God is love, what we're really saying is that God is kind. Because we want Grandpa God. We want that Grandpa God that just longs for us to be happy, right? We want the Grandfather God who just 
wants us to be happy. Listen to this quote by Lewis. I might indeed have learned, even from the poets, that love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. There is kindness in love, but love and kindness are not the same. And when kindness, in the sense given above, is separated from the other elements of love, it involves certain fundamental indifference. Here we go back to that concept. And even something maybe like contempt. We all have met people whose kindness to animals is constantly leading them to kill animals so they won't suffer, right? Kindness, merely as such, cares not whether its ob object becomes good or bad, provided that it escapes suffering. I need to say that again. Kindness, merely as such, cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided that it escapes suffering. But here's the crux. As Scripture points out, the legitimate sons of God who are to carry on God's family tradition are what? Punished. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. It is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any term. But with our friends, our loves, our children, we are demanding and would rather see them suffer much than be happy in contemptible and estranging modes, right? If God is love, he is by definition something more than kindness. And it appears from all records that though he's often, he has often rebuked us and though he has often condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us. And the deepest, most tragic, most relentless sense. Here's that passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. And it seems as though love needs to be defined as such. Because God is love. Scripture tells us God is love. But in love, God refuses to be indifferent to sin that destroys us from the inside out. He longs for his children to choose life, to choose heaven now. God doesn't send people to hell, but he, people chooses hell here on earth long before eternity, and that's where they end up getting trapped. God is not a cosmic grandfather looking out for your happiness, but God loves goes much deeper. And that love is powerful enough to pull you out of the mess you've made in your life. And that's what I want us to consider as we approach the communion table this morning. We're going to be singing the song, Be Thou My Vision, to prepare our hearts. And I want you to think about this one line in there. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun.
the broken body and the shed blood empowers us in that way to live out heaven here on earth. Listen to the words that Dr. Black used to teach so long ago that heaven begins at our baptism, that we have entered into this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven here on earth. And it's God's sacrifice, it's Jesus Christ's sacrifice that empowers us to live heaven here on earth. And God in his great and deep love snatches us out of the hell that we've made of our lives. Oh, can we say thank you to God for that? Father, we we come this morning to simply say thank you. The praises that we sing, the desires of our heart is to be free from the sin that entangles us here on earth. You've accomplished that freedom in your son, Jesus Christ, who raised from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And now we have Lord, the opportunity to be empowered to live here on earth and have your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, thank you. Thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for that power. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.